Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We've had a lot of shows about Donald Trump, too many according to some people. Uh, we've talked to his biographers, his friends, his enemies, but we haven't really had anyone who has, so to speak, had a, a front row at the Trump show. Well, we have today John Jonathan Carl is the chief White House correspondent for ABC. He's worked closely, perhaps too closely, with Trump in some ways. Uh, he first came across him in 1994, and he's been following him ever since. And of course, he has a new book out called Front Row at the Trump Show. It's a New York Times bestseller. It came out a few months ago. Uh, John, uh, to begin, what exactly is the Trump Show? Well, that's the way he views his presidency. I think it's to a degree the way he has viewed his life uh, for, for decades. Uh, he, he views his presidency, I think, as the world's greatest reality show. I mean, just listen to the way he talks about it. He, he talks about his ratings. I mean, literally talks about his ratings. Uh, he talks about uh, the reviews. You know, he's obsessed with the reviews. He's obsessed with the media coverage. He consumes more media coverage about himself uh, than any other president I've covered. I think more than any other public figure I've covered. I mean, he um, actually sits there and he takes advantage of, of having a DVR and he watches everything. He watches the stuff that praises him. You know, he loves to watch his Fox News, but he's watching the others as well. Um, and I know he watches my stuff because I hear about it from him. And I, I, in a way, you never did. I, I've covered, you know, Bush, Obama, a little bit of Clinton, you know, they, they, they all wanted to see how they were being viewed out there, but they were, none of them was anywhere near as, as obsessed with the way, the way the show. <laughs> and it's, again, some people have looked at my title and said, how could you say this is just a show? This is people's lives. And I was like, no, no, no. I very explicitly say in the book, it's called The Trump Show because that is the way Donald Trump views his presidency. I hope he's watching now. He better be. He's got nothing better to do, I guess. Um... John, the, I found your book uh, intriguing um, uh, and it confirmed a lot of my views and it particularly raises the specter of the 1998 movie, The Truman Show by Peter Weir, which of course is a, a movie about people living in virtual reality, in a media virtual reality. To what extent is the, the Trump Show and The Truman Show are they part of what we might think of as, as, as late capitalist America? I mean, you know, you do have a feeling watching all of this that you have entered into a new, something new, uh, and something has ended. I'm not quite ready to declare the end of capitalism based on what I'm seeing or the end of democracy, uh, but it is so, you know, he has so methodically gone through and destroyed norms and uh, destroyed traditions and things that we thought, you know, had to be done in a certain way. He has just completely thrashed them and, and tried to recreate 
I mean, recreate the White House, the presidency in his own image. How has he done it, though? It's a remarkable achievement, whether you like him or not. I think most people, even in uh, 2016, would never have bet that he has achieved, so to speak, as much as he's actually achieved in terms of his destruction of norms. Well, I, I think that he, it's a, it's a good question. I don't know if I have the ultimate answer to that, but I, I can tell you that I think that his method has been um, to constantly think about what would keep the viewer's interest. Because again, it's a show and um, everything, and even it, sometimes it's rather crude. It's like, it's like those, uh, those teases you hear on local news, you know? Um, remember a cartoon, you know, way back when, uh, the, 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 you know, make, making fun of a local news tease, you know, it's 11 o'clock news. Is there a monster under your bed? Uh, the answer, the answer to come. And then you, every commercial break, is there a monster? We'll be right back. And at the end, so is there a monster under your bed? Well, no, there's not, but uh, we'll see until we'll see you tomorrow. But it's always about the tease, always about what's next, always about, I mean, I think that a big part of his. Uh, I think that there are actually several reasons that he goes after the news media the way he does. But I think that as you saw him do these, these press conferences that he started in March uh, with the pandemic, that, that some of the ferocious attacks that he was making on people like me and, and, and some of my other colleagues were, were truly to kind of spice it up. I mean, I think sometimes he was, he was upset and angry, but, you know, and sometimes he was lashing out, uh, you know, for, for an actual reason. But I think sometimes let's, let's, you know, remember, this is a guy that, that loves professional wrestling. You know, this is a guy that had, you know, extreme, the, the extreme fighting guy at his, at his convention. I mean, right. you know, he, it's, it's the, do you remember, I, mean, I think the one of the, I think one of the defining moments of the, uh, there were, it's hard to pick, but, but from the campaign, was when Ted Cruz uh, got up at the convention and there was, there was a lot of, you know, Cruz himself had created a lot of drama. Was he going to finally endorse Trump? And, and it becomes clear as his speech is, is nearing its crescendo that he's not going to endorse Trump. And Trump obviously senses that and he's not in the hall. But as he senses it, he comes into the hall just as you know, Ted Cruz is getting to that opponent. So that's why, you know, I say, and then, you know, Cruz gets to his crescendo, which is not an endorsement of Trump and Trump is walking in. So all the crowd is now turning to Trump instead of Ted Cruz. It was like, I mean, it was, it was, it was straight out of WWE. Your book is a wonderful uh, inside the beltway, I guess, read lots of references to other distinguished journalists like Acosta from CNN and Rachel Maddow and the rest of the crew. Um, I get the sense from the book that at the beginning, at least, you weren't quite sure what was happening. But by the time you wrote it, it was clear what was going on. You have this one anecdote where he's incredibly rude about you on stage and then he gets off stage and he's pretty friendly. To what extent is the responsibility for this circus, this Trump show, uh, your, not yours personally, but the media in general? Did, did, they, did they get sucked in? Did they get used by Trump very clearly in terms of the creation of this show? I, I think the, the answer, candidly, is yes. Um, and, and, and it was like it was a creation that got out of control. Um, I, I, I think if you you know, with apologies to Dr. Frankenstein. Um, 
I think if you go back to those early days with his announcement, I mean, his announcement, you remember, in Trump Tower with the escalator and all that. Yeah. Um, you know, don't forget that it was such a joke that uh, he didn't even have any supporters there. He, had, he literally had to put out a casting call to get people to play Trump supporters in the lobby of Trump Tower. Right. And, and you have and a he, wonderful description of that in the book. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really is something. Um, and, uh, you know, for him to, to, uh, to, to start off that way, there was no real base. There was no real message, frankly. I mean, he, you know, you know, he, he kind of lashing out at immigrants and, you know, this, with this notion of, you know, make America great again. There wasn't a lot of specifics behind any of it besides, uh, even the wall wasn't even there in the beginning, to be to be honest. Um, you know, I mean, he kind of he kind of built that one up as as it went on. Um, but you know, he was um, he had, he had no base. There was no campaign. There was no staff. There were no real supporters. It was, was a no- movie studio. You have one 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 wonderful anecdote in the book where you go and see his um, his uh, his campaign HQ, and you describe it essentially as a movie set. It is. It, it looked exactly like you would expect a campaign headquarters to look, um, or as I say, more accurately, as you would if you were a Hollywood producer and you were cat and you were creating a set for a campaign headquarters. This is what it would look at look like. Except there were no people there. You know, he he had nobody. Although it's it's funny the uh, the handful of people he had, and I described them all in the book. So there was Hope Hicks, the former Ralph Lauren uh, model. Uh, there was uh, Dan Scavino, his former caddy. Uh, there was Johnny McEntee, the, uh, the former Yukon, uh, uh, j- just a couple years out of being a quarterback who had been a you know, junior person you know, uh, over at Fox News who was running around helping him out. There was Corey Lewandowski, and that was kind of about it. Um, and now you look where all those people are. Johnny McEntee, who I described giving me the tour of this set, is now the guy in charge of White House personnel. He's the guy like placing all the, you know, the, the, the Trump loyalists throughout the administration. Dan Scavino is the man behind the Twitter account, now a deputy chief of staff, speaker at the convention, and Hope Hicks, you know, is, is, is back on the scene. But, but that's, that, that's all there was. It is astonishing. And, and reading your book uh, reminded me of, 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 of Postman's great work, Amusing Ourselves to Death, yeah. the, the 1984 book particularly since there's a kind of parallel world in your narrative, the world of North Korea and King Yong, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, you, in your narrative, the reality of, 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 of the Trump show is, seems to be most vividly brought out in his relations with the North Korean leader. There's something really chilling about that, isn't it? It's more than just amusing ourselves to death as a, as a metaphor. There's some reality to it. Yeah. By the way, it was. Uh, I mean, I love. I love Postman's book, um, and it was very influential. Uh, read, read it when I was actually uh, still in high school. Um, you know, the 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 the, the Kim Jong Un relationship was. It was to, for Trump. I mean, this was this was the ultimate. This was the ultimate show. Let's take the scariest guy on the planet, and let's make him even scarier, and then let's embrace him on the world stage and, uh, and, and take credit for diffusing this, uh, the, the, this potential nuclear nightmare. I don't know how much he grasped how dangerous the first phase of that was, but it was frightening. I mean, you had Donald Trump and it was without planning. 
it was it was truly Donald Trump just kind of going with the gut when when he unleashed his uh, fire and fury. He's like, we're going to rain fire and fury on North Korea. Um, as I, I described that scene too, it's at Bedminster. It's an, it's an event on uh, an entirely different subject. He's looking at notes. The notes have nothing to do with North Korea. He just like he, the, the, he's getting the questions because North Korea's just done some tests, and and he just goes off. And then he does his Rocket Man routine at the at the UN. Um, and then on, I mean, without as as little thought went into that, as little thought went into hell. I'll meet with him. You know, the, the South Koreans came and I also described this. The South Korean national security advisor comes to Washington to say Kim Jong-un is willing to talk about, you know, uh, doing a face-to-face -face meeting. Is that, would that be something the president would be interested in doing? The, the, North, the, the, North, the South Korean is not coming to meet with Trump. He's coming to meet with his counterpart, you know, and, and this is like maybe going to be the beginning of a process. But Trump gets wind of the fact he's there. He's like, bring him in. Oh, he wants to meet. Let's do it. And let's announce it now. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. I mean, we laugh, but of course, it's not really very funny. No. Uh, and we certainly can't blame prominent media figures like yourself for this. Uh, no. You've taken the degree of responsibility. I mean, where is the responsibility? Uh, have Americans or at least 40 or 50 percent of Americans simply been watching too much TV and are, are quite incapable now of distinguishing between uh, fantasy between uh, between virtual reality stars like Trump and the real world. I mean, we 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 may have been living in Postman's world, and of course, Postman wrote wrote that book, you know, pre-internet. Hell, he, he essentially wrote it pre-cable TV. I mean, cable TV was there, but it wasn't really a, a factor yet. Um, you know, but we we've we've lived in in an entertainment world where it is different, difficult to distinguish between what's real and what's not real. And at the same time, our political world um, has become such that with, with this proliferation of outlets that you can now spend your entire day consuming information, watching news, reading news, uh, news in some cases, um, uh, in quotes, that it does nothing but confirm your own point of view. It uh, doesn't truly inform you, uh, just plays into your, your, your biases and, and, and confirms your beliefs and never challenges you. And, and that's the world in which Donald Trump, you know, uh, comes into. And, and it's, uh, I, I, I mentioned that the, you know, the famous quote from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the, the former New York senator who said, you know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. But now, and this is, Trump didn't create this, but he sure accelerated it you know we, we have a world where you can have your where you have your own opinion and you, and you have your own facts to go along with it uh john your your book front row at the trump show was a was a major new york times bestseller it came out um in march of this year so i guess you finished writing it in late 2019 if you were writing it now would would the the chapters on trump's america on covid and black lives matter would it be just another chapter or is, have, ha, has something happened in 2020 to change the very nature of the Trump show? I, I, mean, I would certainly write about all of that, but I think that what I describe in my book kind of um, explains what happened uh, with how he handled COVID and how he 
handled this, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, these calls for racial justice in the wake of these horrific uh, police uh, killings. Um, you know, the uh, my chapter on Charlottesville, like suddenly, mm. you know, you, uh, you look at it and 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 you understand exactly uh, what happened when he walked across Lafayette Park after, you know, after those protesters were so brutally. Rem- uh, uh, removed and you know held the Bible in front of the church. It's 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 exactly consistent and understood better, I think, when you see what was going on behind the scenes uh, in Charlottesville. Um, and you know, I, I wrote about the Trump show, but the Trump show really didn't have its grand you know opening until COVID. I mean, that's when he discovered there was a there was a White House briefing room which he hadn't used um, uh, before. And, um, you know, the daily show, uh, and, and, you know, again, literally talking about the ratings, yeah, there was that one, it was so surreal. The country is reeling from this horrific, this pandemic that has affected every human being in this country. And Trump is talking about how his press briefings have higher ratings than the bachelor finale. I mean, John, here's an easy one. How, how does the Trump show end? I mean, how would it end if it was, if it was just on television? Well, um, you know, if, if he loses, uh, the, the, the ending would, would be a cliffhanger. And the cliffhanger would be, is he really going to go? Is he going to go voluntarily? Is he going to have to be forced out? What's going to happen on January 20th? How much is he going to, you know, try to undermine everything before he leaves? And I think that if he does lose this election, um, he will play it. He will, he will make us wonder that for a long time. You know, is he... You know, obviously a lot depends on how badly he loses, how clear cut the results are and all this kind of stuff. But I think that ultimately he leaves and he says goodbye and he goes down to Mar-a-Lago and, you know, and, and I, I don't think that he is somebody that is going to, you know, he, 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 he doesn't, I don't think he wants to be a dictator, but I do think he wants to play one on TV. I, so I, 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 I don't right. see him, you know, I, he will he will go and it will be it will be fine i i had a conversation this i this is not in the book um but um but i had a conversation with one of his uh, you know very senior people who then who then left and i asked the question you know is he going to accept the results and is he going to leave voluntarily and the answer i got is oh yes he, he, he we have people to ensure that will happen <laughs> and then he said and then and then this person offered this image to me I uh, said he could chain himself to the resolute, you know, to his to his desk in the Oval Office. He could chain himself to the resolute, and those people would go in, and they would clip the chains, and they would escort him out calmly without incident. What does it but say? That, it's, it's not going to come to that. My my feeling is it does not come anywhere near that. But because you want to keep people wondering, we're going to wonder what's going to happen until we get to January twentieth. What does it tell us? And you end your, your book on a, on a fairly optimistic note about American democracy, suggesting that we're going to get it back or that it's, it's not dying. Uh, but what does it tell us about American democracy that a single individual can be so profoundly destructive? Yeah, I mean, and, and I'll say one, one thing that I'll confess, uh, you asked me what would be different if I was writing this post-pandemic and, 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 and post-George um, Floyd. Um, 
you really, I, I talk about the dangers, I talk about the sinister side of all of this, but it's, it, it, it all appeared even more dangerous and more sinister um, and more damaging and more destructive. And I think you ask a really, a really good question. I close with my belief in the power of our institutions, institutions created by deeply flawed people over the course of American history. Um, but deeply flawed people with with a with a great idea um, um, and um, and 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 heroic people who made the achievement of that idea more complete as as each you know as each period passed by um, so I, I still have faith in, in those institutions but but it, it is it is amazing how destructive somebody can be by simply saying, I'm not going to abide by those norms that you all think are sacrosanct. Screw it. I mean, even small, even relatively small stuff, this is not small, but it's in the, in the scheme of all that we're seeing right now, maybe it seems that way. I mean, this idea of like, screw you, I'm not going to testify uh, to Congress. You know, we're, 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 we're not going to do in-person briefings on election security. I mean, where, where does that come from? What do you mean? Uh, subpoena me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, honor the subpoenas. Um, it's, we, we, we just, you know, eventually I guess all this stuff could get adjudicated, but the Supreme court, you know, also has basically said in some of these cases, it's for you guys to work out. Well, if the, if the executive branch is just going to turn to the legislative branch and say, screw you, what, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> you know? So let's say Trump loses, Biden becomes president. Is there going to be a Biden show or are we back to a regular viewing? I kind of think, you know, when, when Warren Harding uh, ran uh, back in 1920, he, he, um, uh, his, his, he wanted a return to normalcy. <laughs> and I kind of think, now, now I should point out Warren Harding went on to be arguably the worst president in American history. I guess there'd be some debate now um, right. along with, you know, James Buchanan. Um, but I, I, I kind of think that, um, I, I think that's the plan. I think that Biden is the, you know, it, it would be like, I'm going to try to work with Republicans. I'm not going to do too many radical things. I'm going to, so I, I, I don't think there's going to be a Biden show in any way like we've seen uh, with the Trump show. Do you think you'll be nostalgic for the Trump show one day in your old age, remembering well, that you had that front row seat? Um, I, I think that I will be, talking about and thinking about and, 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 and just kind of in wide wonder about all that I have seen for, for many, many years. I don't know if I, it wouldn't be nostalgia. <laughs> it wouldn't be like, gosh, I wish we could have that again. Um, but it's just, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, as a reporter, what you, you relish a good story. And, and one of the things that makes a good story is where you really don't know what's going to happen. Um, and you're surprised and you, uh, and, you know, as a White House reporter, pre-Trump, there's very little that ever surprises you. I mean, every statement, every utterance, every policy rolled out, and it all goes through a process and tends to be, you know, tends to be rather, uh, you know, rather dull, um, um, which is a good thing. <laughs> Dullness is a good thing in many ways, you know. I remember Charles Krauthammer, um, 
many, many, many years ago, writing in Time magazine, uh, the headline just annoyed the hell out of me as a young, as a young person who had just gotten the right to vote. You know, he said, in praise of low voter turnout. And Krauthammer was making the point, you know, and he said, especially among the youth. It's like, I, I don't, you know, we should live in a country where the youth, the youth don't think it really matters. Because if it does, then, then we're kind of, you know, we're kind of screwed. And it wow. should matter, you know. If you want, the movie theater is a shot, but if, if you want uh, the front row view of the Trump show, you need to read Jonathan Carl's wonderful new book, uh, not so new now, it's still six months uh, old, front row at the Trump show. Uh, John, finally, uh, you referred back to Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, his 1984 masterpiece, which you, I think, are suggesting people might read. Uh, yes. What else should people be reading? in addition to Postman and your book, to make sense of uh, this weird moment in American history? You know, uh, uh, one book that I'm um, fairly new here just over the last few weeks uh, is Robert Draper's book on, on Iraq. And it has nothing to do with Trump. Uh, the, the, the book starts with 9-11 uh, and ends with the invasion. Um, so it's, it's well before all of this stuff, but it, first of all, it's a wonderful read. Draper's a great writer and has lots of, uh, fascinating reporting in it. But the reason why I, I suggested in this time is I think that that decision by, by George W. Bush, um, which may be one of the worst presidential decisions in, in American history, um, really set the stage for everything that came afterwards. I mean, without that decision, uh, you don't have a Barack Obama. I mean, Barack Obama, you know, his moment was created by being the guy in the Democratic primary who opposed the war. And you don't have a Donald Trump either. I mean, Donald Trump can come in and lay waste to the Republican Party in part because the Republican Party's legacy was was that, and it wasn't a good one. So I would do Raper's book, Draper's book, and I also just got uh, Michael Schmidt's book, uh, New York Times reporter. I think it's called Trump versus the United States. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm just getting into it, but, uh, but it looks like it's going to be uh, well worth the read, too. We had Draper on the show. Um, and guess what? He also suggested at the end that people should read your book. So this Oh, excellent. Good on. for him. I see, I knew I had something there. <laughs> You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.